Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast. Hello and welcome to the True Fiction Podcast, where we talk with talented creative people and find out where their inspiration comes from. I'm your host, Patrick Boggs. Across the desk for me is a phenomenally creative Norbert Yates. How's it going tonight, Norbert? Peachy. It's going peachy. I'm, I'm peachy. excited about tonight. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we have a, a great guest tonight. Our guest tonight is the award-winning author, Allison Church. How's it going tonight, Allison? It's going great. I'm so glad that you came and joined us to talk about your stuff, which is your book. I'm a huge horror fan and a a fantasy fan as well, so I'm really looking forward to picking your brain about these subjects. Thank Uh, you. I'm here to be picked. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, what do you like about horror? Oh, well, it's the only thing. It has a magic all its own. I mean, it's the only thing that in a darkened theater, if it's right in the formula is delivered properly will cause two absolute strangers to start grabbing each other for comfort. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I was at a haunted house once and my a buddy of mine uh, literally jumped into my lap as I was standing uh, from one of the scares. And, you know, that's that's exhilarating. Uh, not somebody having jumping to my lap, but that, the scare is exhilarating. That's so, the magic of horror. Absolutely. You know, uh, one thing I think is really fun about horror is that if you make a movie, you almost any movie you make, you're going to have to have a named actor or it's not going to be looked on as a, a quality movie. But a horror movie, it can be all no name actors. It could be anybody. It absolutely. could be anybody. I mean, who knew Robert England besides him and being V before he became Freddy Krueger? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Tobin Bell from Saw. And now you, you'll watch old movies and see him go, oh, that's Tobin. That's him. So, yeah. But, yep. yeah, nobody knew who he was. So I always liked that about So I, I want to uh, ask the same question about fantasy. What takes you to fantasy? Fantasy and science fiction could be in this realm, too. Fantasy has the unique ability to explore society's mistakes, taboos, things that aren't exactly mainstream Uh, also fantasy is kind of like magic in itself because you can do the impossible if your fictional science if you want it for a better word makes sense to the reader then it's science and i love that about fantasy i remember this is an old book but the stranger in a strange land it actually uh, sparked an actual religion from that book from a a fantasy or science fiction fantasy book so yeah, I thought that was very interesting. Um, That's what um, fantasy is the art of the possible future. I like horror adventure more in movies. I'm mm-hmm. not a whole that there's a lot of subgenres on that. And I was thinking about the difference between writing a horror novel as opposed to a screenplay. Because I think about horror and some of what makes things really scary is pacing and visuals and sound which is all the domain of movies but novels have less control over pacing and obviously sound and and visuals then you have control over sort of the mental picture part of it but there's in terms of an environment to achieve a scare you know i think of jaws like for the classic example you know that moment i think of all the elements that 
film uses. I was just thinking about when you're writing a horror novel, how do you approach um, that? Well, uh, I kind of use a motion picture angle when I'm writing a book. In my mind, in my mind's eye, while I'm t- you know typing it on my keyboard, I have a movie going on in my mind that's showing me what I'm writing on the page. The only uh, disadvantage I have for that is, like you said, there's the pacing that's involved. What might be frightening to one person could be totally amusing to another. More with the movie side, if you were doing it uh, audio-visual, that could be more visceral. That can be more attentive to the person's senses. Whereas in a novel, you have the author has to rely mostly on the imagination of their reader. When you take a medication, it doesn't it doesn't add anything to you. It actually triggers and triggers your body to make those chemicals. I, mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the um, the book. You know that will trigger things in your mind. I, I've always uh, had a question. And what do you think about this? Do you think someone can get PTSD from reading a book? That's a pretty fascinating thing. Um, I think horror or suspense or terror mystery uh, do have elements of a story when it's created could cause a flashback through a reader who was a potential victim at one time. There you can get the PTSD, I think. But I also believe that if they take that story to their bed at night and they go to sleep and they have nightmares, um, yeah, they could probably wake up and either not finish the book or if they finish the book might even make it worse. It's a. It's interesting how powerful the written word can actually be. The, the power of suggestion and the person's own imagination are as only limited to the person that's uh, involved. I mean, like like I said, what would be frightening to one person and blood chilling to another could be a silly cartoon to the next person. It's it's all a matter of perspective. What frightens you, Allison? And do you put that in your books? Um, when I write my books. Almost to the one. Every single book, I'm one of the characters in the book. That's how I infuse myself into the story and make it alive for me. I can be either male or female in the book. And I love uh, when someone reads my book, I love playing what I call the game where they try to guess which character I was. And if they get it, I tell them. Mm -hmm. And what this does for me is um, when the fright happens or when the uh, reveal is done, I either get great fear from writing it because I have been, I've been frightened by stuff that I've written too. Or if it's the reveal, I get great satisfaction for it. So there's a vicarious joy in writing the book and being a part of that story. When you write a book, you said you was talking about seeing a movie in your head. Do you pre-plan that very much or do you like, you know, I've uh, my classic example of this is Alan Moore who, Ah. who would write, he would write long sections of, of, of story. And he would say, my, what I'm going to tell you is a cross section, a short cross section of much bigger story in my mind. And I act out all these characters, you know, something similar to the, your, your movie reference. And I was wondering how you approached it. Do you develop characters outlines before that you want to use and you put them together? Do you think about the personalities or does a plot come first? How do you approach creating a story? Usually I have a basic idea that I put on a three by five index card. 
and I got this big plastic box where I keep all these cards and I'll go through and I'll pick one and say, this one sounds interesting and I'll take it out. And from that three by five card, I'll write a two or three page, very rough outline. I'll develop the characters, but I won't develop them too much because it's been my experience that characters while you're writing a story can sometimes take on a life of their own and go totally off the page. And so I just write the basics. Um, I do try to do a basic chapter by chapter outline, like in this chapter, we're going to cover, you know, this and that and so on and so forth. And, but like I said, I do it very basically because my characters sometimes have a way of becoming the star of the show and the star of the show sort of becomes a secondary support character. So when I'm writing a story, I basically know how it's going to go, but I honestly can't guarantee that it'll go that way. So in a way, that's the exciting point to me, because as I'm writing the story, I'm also discovering it because I got all the historical facts I need if it's a historical uh, novel or even some kind of scientific stuff. But I leave the characters and the story up to the moment as I'm writing it. Obviously, you have different you have different sort of goals when you write different kinds of stories. For example, mm-hmm. a his, you know, you, a fantasy has a different kind of arc to it than a horror story, and yes. uh, most most likely, unless you're trying to you know do a mashup or science fiction, is there a through line that you have to have before you pursue a story, or is there like do you go okay, my stories have to have X, Y, and Z. Or how do you, what, what green lights in your mind a story? Um, personally, it has to be something that I find very intriguing. Originality is, is important too, but we're living in a universe where that's almost as rare as gold. Like I, I wrote a horror novel called Dark Passenger. What intrigued me about that story is that it's a horror novel that takes place on the Titanic. So I already have a vehicle in the storyline that will keep the people interested because if they invest themselves in a character, naturally they want to find out if this character survives the disaster. And also, it, it I like the folklore and the kind of hammer film, amicus film slant that I gave the story because there's also a Scotland Yard, retired Scotland Yard investigator who has to investigate these series of murders on the Titanic and not realizing that they're of a supernatural slash horrific nature. Huge, huge fan of those uh, movies, by the way. So I think of when we talk about creativity in artists, they typically fall into one of two camps, broadly speaking. There are people that are conceptually, you know, very good. They come up with ideas or plot lines that are have originality. They, you know, twist things or, you know, as Tolkien would say, subcreate. And they put together, I, I, my one example on that would be Michael Crichton, who yeah. ha- always comes up with these fantastic ideas and had enough broad scientific knowledge that the layman would be like, oh, wow, this is, this is totally doable. <laughs> and then you have, you have the character driven sort of plots, you know, like Elmore Leonard, um, that, you know, the language and the characters become the star of the show. And you know, there's two different camps. I, within that, you could, I, I mean, this is not a great dividing line. I think of the conceptual versus sort of the people that execute really well. I think of in, in, this, in this context, let's just pretend that the character people are the people that execute very well. What do you think your strength is? Do you think it's more conceptual or do you think it's more execution? Oh, crossing lines here. Actually, I think it's both. 
because I like developing characters that have a past. You know, you in order to understand somebody's presence, you have to know a little bit about their past. So I try to put down key points in their past that made the character the person that they are at the moment of the story. But at the same time, I, I dare to allow the reader to fill in the blanks with their own imagination. I really don't have that much patience for a book that spends 10 pages describing a bowl of fruit. If you don't know what an apple is, I can't help you because it's just going to be an apple in my book. <laughs> well, Stephen King sold a lot of books, but he, yes, he, has. he has a lot. He does that a lot. I know. And he's one of my favorite writers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think he's done some just, well, he's such but a classic. At, at this particular point in his career, if you don't know what you're getting into when you're buying a Stephen King novel, you really need to catch up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's very interesting. I, I, so I did want to know about you talking about creating characters. Now I know there's a several different ways that I one one way I found was the diamond. I don't know if you've ever seen this, where the top is what they, what they, what they love, and the bottom is what they fear, and the you know what they're. So it's it basically is a very quick, down and dirty character study. Then there's also the the long form where you basically write the whole life story of this person. What do you do when you create a character? Well, you might laugh, but when I write, when I create a character, I do it with the same pattern and technique that someone does when they create a character that they're going to use on Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> really? I write out basically I write out a detailed I write out more than I need. Uh, if the story gets to the point where it needs something, I'll go back and look at my trusty character uh, sheet and go, okay, yeah, I'll use that. And then if it fits, I'll put it in. But too much information on a character's descriptions, tastes, traits, and all that is never too much. Because you could find something that you put at the bottom that you just did as an afterthought, which could be the key to making Chapter 6 interesting enough to make them go to chapter seven. We talked to a comic book maker. Uh, it was uh, Exsanguinous. It was a Dark Horse comic. I don't know if you remember this, Norbert. But when we talked to these people, they talked about every page having an item at the bottom of the page to to as a page turner. Basically, you know, how you have, uh, you know, the... Uh, the old serials would leave on a cliffhanger. They were ah, talking about yeah. every page had a cliffhanger. And in this modern world, they can actually, on electronic comics, they could track when people stopped reading and never went back to the comic. So Ooh. do you, are you there or do you feel like you can take a couple pages to give some information before you have something like a cliffhanger? What I like to do is that as I'm writing the story, and I know some writers think this is uh a bad taboo but as i'm writing it i'll hand uh, some of it to my friends and colleagues people who have read my books in the past and i will listen to their feedback because god help the artist that doesn't listen to feedback you have to make it interesting these people are taking their hard-earned money and they are investing in the ability that you're using to entertain them if they become disappointed it's going to be very hard to bring them back so if there was a way that I could do the cliffhanger, the only way that I, I do that is as, as they're reading the book, I give them a questionnaire. Was there anything in this chapter that annoyed you? Uh, was there anything that wasn't as loose as, 
as it should be. Is there a character you absolutely hate? And I've had that a lot. I've had to eliminate some characters oh, wow. who were just there at the beginning and they served a purpose, but they didn't really help the story along as I originally intended or planned. So yes, there's always room for rewrite. And I always listen to the opinions of my test readers. Talking about that, I, uh, another thing that I was very curious about is your relationship with your fans. I know that you had a lot of readers, and I wanted to know how close you are with them and how much you allow their feedback to, to um, work in with your, your, uh, your work, your novels. Well, having been a raging fan myself and still a raging fan to some writers, I respect every suggestion that I get for the simple uh, notion that they took time from their day to write it. That's important. I might not accept it, but I will write them and tell them that I appreciate their time and their effort. I will keep it up for suggestion if this book happens to have a sequel. Because, you know, you never know. You never know what someone says, just a little minuscule line in like the fourth paragraph could be something that could save your next book. Have you ever uh, made a continuation so, because of because of the feedback from audience? Um, someone made a suggestion while I was writing Dark Passenger. It's my favorite book, so I'm going to reference it a lot. Absolutely. Um, there's a Scotland Yard investigator in it, and someone made the suggestion that since it's taken place in 1912, and this investigator has just retired and is going to Canada, have him, have him uh, at once been involved in the Jack the Ripper investigations. And I said, you know, that's not bad because... Uh, being a historical freak myself, I love stories about Jack the Ripper. And even though he wasn't on the, the uh, ship, this um, detective who has a linear logic about him, he has a sort of a Sherlock Holmesian style. He did not want to accept the fact that it was the supernatural that he was hunting down. He thought it was probably uh, Jack the Ripper or an imitation killer. That's what he called it, which would be the forerunner of what we call today the copycat. Copycat, sure. And it just added an extra layer of uh, interest to him because he's already you know, seen the devil's work up close. And the fact that he's on the Titanic and he has a certain disrespect or personal dislike of people who are affluent and wealthy. He's on the wrong boat. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That sounds interesting. When you're writing and you was talking about fans and influence with the fans, I always find this a, a, a interesting way to try to do creative work because there's also, you, you know, you, you want stuff that people will resonate for. But there's also a matter of staying true to your creative vision, because if you allow whoever the client, I mean, I do a lot of, uh, I do client work. So, you know, the client has veto power. And if they say, hey, you know, I'm paying you to do this and I want to redo it. But there's also a sort of, there's certain things I can't do or I won't do. And I will tell them that because at some point, it's not my strength if you want me to go too far away from that. And I was thinking about that in terms of writing. And when you're dealing with fans, you know, there's some fans that are going to be much more vocal and yes. they may lead you on the primrose path to, you know, something really great or something really bad. And I was thinking about when you're writing, do you think I'm trying to write this to make me entertained 
or a broader group or how, what's the mindset? I don't get me wrong. I respect all the input that my fans give me, but I tell them, you know, this is my story. I'm the captain of this ship. Now you can be a good Lieutenant and offer a suggestion or two. I might take them. If I don't, please don't be, take it personally. It just wasn't right for that story. I have to stick to the belief that I have and the fact that I am trying to write what I hope will be a very entertaining story. And it complicates issues a heck of a lot. If instead of writing my story, I'm writing 1600 other people's stories all at once. I'm, <laughs> I might be good, but I'm not that good. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a good segue to my next thought. How do you measure good? How do you measure improvement? How because I'm you know, I've been drawing for a while, I've been doing video for a while. I'm always aspiring to the next to to yes. add to my tool, toolbox and to be better. And yes. so that when I look back at my portfolio, I can see some sort of improvement and writing is a little different. And I was wondering if there's any metrics or any mental ways that you look at to try to decide what is better or do you not even think about it? You just, I'm all right. I'm a storyteller and it's kind of a a two way street. I do think about it, but I don't a perfect example of what I would call good writing and something that uh, shows promise for me is that I could be writing. I'll look up at the clock. It'd be eight o'clock in the morning and I'll look down and I'm writing and I'm writing and I'm writing and I'll look back up and it's close to 10 o'clock at night and I am not fatigued. I'm still excited. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. When I'm enjoying what I'm doing, it's usually good because I will go back and do the inevitable proofreading and there will be pages, quotations, pages that I consciously do not remember putting down on paper. And to me, that's what makes it good is that you're so into it that you almost catapult through time and, and, and finishing. It's not, it's not a, it's not frustrating. It's not a, a work. It's, it's a joy. And when you get into that zone, or at least when I get into that zone. Do you ever go, cause I, I sit there, I've got a portfolio book. Or, or books of, of you know, and I'll, I'll thumb through there and go, oh, that's terrible, that's terrible, that's terrible, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. Eh, eh, that's okay. That's terrible, terrible. Getting better. All right, that's not too bad. That's not too oh, bad. Yeah. I can you know, totally do you, do you, or do you just, I'm done with it, this is in the rear view mirror, and I'm not looking at it again? Um, inspiration to me is a magical element that um, the artist they can either enjoy it or they can be cursed by it. When I write something, um, I kind of go with the uh, suggestion that the Hollywood legendary uh, Irving, Irving Thalberg did. He said, there's no such thing as a bad story. It just needs a better edit. And there's been many a times in his career where he saved certain films that rest people thought were dogs. And not only did it become Best Picture, it actually won an Oscar for the star that performed it. So I keep all of my stories and I put them in a separate uh, trunk. And I will occasionally, like you, look through my literary portfolio and go, this sucks. Why did I even write this? Oh, my God, I misspelled a word. And, <laughs> and go through it and everything. And I'll find one that as I've gotten older and uh, wiser, 
<laughs> it will intrigue me and say, you know, this isn't half bad. I'm going to see what I can do with this. And sometimes it works. Mostly it doesn't, but it's there if I need it. I was wondering, when was the first story that you had published? Oh, God. That was back in 1997. Oh, really? It, okay. was, it was a short story that I sold to a Canadian magazine. It's called There's No Such Thing as Zombies. And it was a story about a parking lot attendant who was working at a parking lot in Los Angeles in the middle of the zombie apocalypse. And he doesn't believe that zombies exist. He thinks it's just ruffians trying to, you know, get away with breaking the law and stuff like that. He goes all Mad Max and he protects his (laughs) uh, parking lot. And eventually nobody's there. He's just alone, kind of like, uh, you know, Neville and, uh, I am legend. Yeah. 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 And, um, eventually this girl comes in and she wants to park. Hasn't had a customer for (laughs) five years. And these zombies come out, but he didn't call them zombies. He called them snowflakes. Hmm. (laughs) And he's thinking that they're all like, because this guy was uber conservative, which I'm not. So I had to go pick the brains of a few friends who were. <laughs> and they, he considered them like liberals and stuff. So he called them snowflakes. That term was just coming into the, you know, Zeitgeist. the vocabulary. Yeah. yeah. And it had a very interesting ending. Uh, this, he, he To make the long story short, he uh, saves the girl. They leave. They go out into the world and you know, try to rebuild what they can. And then they go into this like ruin of a motel six and he's always wearing sunglasses at the end of the story. He's always wearing sunglasses. And she says something like, well, at least it's not the end of the world. And he takes off his glasses and he turns around and says, yes. And there's no such thing as zombies. And he's got zombie eyes and Uh, he's been a zombie all this time. It's just his conservatism was the catalyst that kept him in control up till that time. Uh, that's interesting. Do you have, uh, I mean, that, I don't know if you, you meant to write that uh, as a political statement or, but no, are there, no, no. are there, do you don't, you don't do a lot of statements or you're pretty much, no, you're about no. the story. I'm, about, I, I'm not really political, but if like in that case, there was a character who was, it did actually add to the story. Absolutely. Um, um I think people, I mean, religion and politics should be like very private things. Um, the only time I use any of those is if it helps the story. And if somebody comes up to me and they want to condemn me for it, that's the price I pay for being a creator. I commend you for that. I think it's great. I think that I think what we need are stories. I think we don't need anything to uh, divide us. We need something. And, oh, no. you know, if you're if you, you know, the story is uh, there, there are stories that have uh, characters in them that I friggin' hate. And that, that's what exactly what the author wanted me to do, you know. So mm-hmm. I love that. I love when, you know, how an author can control your mind in, in a lot of ways. So, Yes. It's like a puppet master. <laughs> yeah, <way>. sadly. Yeah. <laughs> I have a theory, and I want to spring it on you and see how, if this, this resonates with you. I, I'm getting to the point where I think a lot of people creatively ha- get their imprints fairly early, probably in their teen years, at least I have. And I've talked to enough people to get a sense that, that that happens. Like 
the two of my two or three of my favorite artists I got introduced to me in, in my you know teen early before that and that sort of visual style still appeals to me decades later now there's other artists I like and I appreciate but there's a certain hardening of of my sensibilities that happened fairly early and I wondered if there was any creative influences or writers that when you was relatively young that imprinted on you oh yes um the, the classics hg wells jules verne um i like i i adore richard matheson i mean if there was anybody that inspired me to write horror it was him i mean he was he was a wordsmith that man could write anything i mean from the twilight zone to actually an original Star Trek episode, to the masterpieces that he created in fiction, short fiction, and 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 the like, and the screenplays that uh, were based on his work, like Duel, it in itself didn't have that much dialogue except for the voiceovers. But the the visceral anticipation of a guy trying to run away from someone who's killing him, and he doesn't even know why. I mean. That's master. That's master showmanship, and they they left a lasting impression on me. Stephen King left a last. Charles Beaumont. I mean, all these Rod Serling. They all left the the art of the story, is what I like to call the gift that they gave me. If it doesn't resonate within the heart and the mind of the creator, it will not resonate in the heart and mind of the reader or watcher. Piggybacking on that, I also. I'm looking for influences. I've been looking for other artists. I'm looking to be inspired. Now, my art's not going to go a 90 degree in a different direction or, you know, 180 and and going backwards or or going a different, totally different. But I feel like I can add little uh, techniques and tools and and maybe lighting schemes or maybe something that I pick up from this artist or this other artist. And so I'm always on the lookout for something new and interesting that I can like steal uh, and put in my toolbox. (laughs) And while I'm not going, it's not going to be, by the time it goes through my pretty hardened frame at this point, it's not going to be whatever it is I saw. And I was wondering is as a writer, is there something analogous to that or not? I would like to think that sometimes beyond the uh, pure entertainment that I'm giving, I would like for them to see the subconscious message that I sometimes put in some of my work. Although it's not a major factor in the storytelling, I I would like to hear from people and, they, and have them say to me that I made their life a little bit brighter or made it a little more scarier. Scarier would be cool. Um, and, you know, just like, you know, you always see the things, the Hallmark moment where somebody will walk up with somebody at a table and they'll ask him if that's, you know, John Smith. And they say, yes. And they say something along the lines that, uh, you, I just want you to know that at the darkest time in my life, I saw your movie or I went to an art exhibit. I, I read your book and it, it helped. It saved me. I mean, I think to a certain extent that is the 
the goal of every artist or creative person. They would like to, at the end of their encounter with that person or that artist, to have them be a little bit better, walk a little bit you know, taller, with a little more bounce in their step, even though we all know that that effect won't last long because life has a way of weighting you down. Oh, boy. <laughs> but just for that one precious moment, you've created something that kept people's minds off of their troubles. I mean, even a horror novel can do that. I mean, I mean, Frankenstein, I mean, that kept me going for a long time when I was a kid because I would put myself vicariously into the uh, character of the monster, the creature, and the agonies and the realities of life that that creature faced for the first time as a child, because even though he had a grown-up body, he was still experiencing that with an open and young heart. And as, like you said, as you, as you get older, his heart got hardened by the reality of life. And that in itself made him a better character. You know, it's like art is a wonderful thing. It's a way of uh, recording the human emotion, the human mind, the human dream. And I... I couldn't see myself doing any anything but what I'm doing. And if you love what you're doing, even if it's a failure, you still love it. Sure. I, and one last question for me, and that's <clears throat> what happens whenever it doesn't work? I have pieces that don't work. Do you put yeah. it away? Do you toss the idea? Do you, oh, we talked to one artist that says, hey, when a painting's not working, I just rip it up yeah. and throw it away. Yeah, What's, well, um, what happens when it doesn't work? It, it affects me emotionally. I feel like, you know, I failed. But I learned from that failure because that kind of story, unless it's exceptionally original or intrigues me here and in my heart, I don't do again. Uh, I did one historical novel, just purely historical. And I did it for the simple reason that my favorite movie, the one that I like to watch over and over again, is Gone with the Wind. I, I love it. I had a big crush on Vivian Lee when I was younger, so that could be a problem right there. But <laughs> It's called Selznick's Folly, and it was a fictional account of the making of Gone with the Wind. And I wanted to tell the story of basically an independent filmmaker that went against Big Hollywood when Big Hollywood was big. And it was an independent film. Everybody called it Selznick's Folly at the time because the average motion picture at that time was about 75 to 90 some odd minutes long and cost on an average between $10,000 and $25,000. Now, back then, that was money. But Gone with the Wind was three hours and 57 minutes long and cost $3 million Holy in 1939 cow. Uh, so nobody said that it was going to work. They said, this guy, he just created the world's first white element elephant film. This is an example that films should be done by professionals. In other words, big money. And I admire the courage and fortitude that David Selznick had to create such a masterpiece that is still liked and loved by some today. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. A failure is only a failure is if you accept it as a failure. Now, you can go on and say, I'm sorry that you disliked it, but in my heart, it still has a, good, has, a, you know, has a place there, and I find the story valid. I mean, 
Everybody has the red redheaded stepchild. <laughs> you just gotta take the good with the bad. I agree. What advice would you give to somebody that's just starting out writing? Learn to imagine first. Uh, read uh, the book Elements of Style. Yeah. And if you want to really know how to write, you should read the books of the writers you admire. Learn their style. I know uh, I took uh, Stephen King's Salem's Lot, which is my favorite book of his, and I wrote side notes in it, like going, this sounds like something Toby Hooper probably used in the miniseries. Or I, I wrote stuff like, you know, the obvious. Salem's Lot was basically Dracula in New England. Yeah. And just study, just study them. See how they pace their sentences, where they put their commas. Um, when did they introduce the characters? Is it before they get to the the Big Bang, like on, on uh, Salem's Lot? Is it before they introduce the dark history of the Marston House and stuff like that? Pay attention to the storytelling. And if you want to really be bold, write that person a letter. Maybe through luck and a miracle, they might get that letter. And then through another luck and a miracle, may write you back. That's magic in itself because <laughs> I've written some famous people that I thought would never write me back. Some didn't. And I just blame that on the process because it gets lost in the sure. missionary. But read, read, read. And believe in your vision. I've heard that before, and I have to say that that's so important because in a lot of ways, it's not as easy as it sounds. No, to believe. it's not. The, the voices in your head sometimes want to tear you down. Um, yeah, doubt is your biggest enemy. Yeah, I would agree. Artisans are, are sensitive people. That too. That typically. too well. That's, that's what typically makes them good in some ways, and then it's also weakness. Yeah, uh, I honestly believe that you can't create unless you have that duality that goes on, like with the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other you have to have that you have to be sensitive and at the same time you have to be objective uh you just can't go on faith alone because you know sometimes i don't, I, i've actually started writing a story and loved it and by the time i got to like chapter nine i'm going Ugh. and then i salt it away and i don't play with it for a couple years and then i bring it back sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't Creativity is nothing but trial and error and luck. <laughs> you know, and, and I've always said uh, a lot of creativity and a lot of um, expressing it is problem solution. You know, you're presented, you present yourself with a problem and then you have to solve it. Um, oh, yeah. Graphically, that's always been um, how I've, uh, you know, in a way it's how I accept it. You know, how I accept it, uh, you know, that I... <laughs> can't do something that I wanted to do. And then I just say, well, you know what? This is a, this, there is a solution to this and I can find it and, and it happens, but yeah. It is the greatest feeling in the world when you overcome your own monsters. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's the, that's the great thing about creativity. That's the great thing about doing writing or drawing or any creative, creative activity, because it's something that once you get something done that you are uh, you feel good about, it's 
you feel really good about it and it's and you know it's something that came from you you know this is something that you know you're whatever you've thought of in your life everything you've done in your life and you do this piece of work that's the culmination of of where you're at at that time it's it's almost like a picture in time i'm sure you have books that you've written and you look at those books and you go oh my gosh i remember myself when i was writing that book i was so yes. this i was so that Yes. Uh, I think to a certain extent, any creator, uh, artist, writer, actor, or, you know, even a movie maker, the product that ends up, you know, finished and is that's to me, every book that I've written is like a child. I mean, you send like a parent, you send that child out into the world, you hope for the best. But if for some reason your child falls on their, you know, falls flat on their face or their posterior, and uh, doesn't look like they're going to be getting any laurels. I usually just coddle the child and say, "Well, we'll do better next time." You know, and it's 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 sort of a it's a, it's a metaphor that helps me get past my failures. I learn. You got to learn from your failures. Uh, I don't try to forget them. It just I just I treat them. They're like a living entity in my life. Every character that I created, even though they, some of them are not a part of me, they resonate and they, they're real to me. It's kind of like a Walter Mitty existence, kind of. I mean, when I'm, when, I'm re, when I'm rereading the story, I'm living that character in my mind. And it's like I realized the joys that I had when I created them, the disappointments I had when they totally pissed me off because okay. they were that evil. I mean, I didn't think I was capable of creating such evil people. And I'm sure every creator goes through that. They're going, can I really do this? Because this is too dark. This is against my nature. This is not who I am. But it's a challenge like that that will prepare you for the next work, even though you don't know what it is yet. Because you can use that sense of accomplishment. Well, since I've done this, I know I can do that. Right. You can build upon that. Absolutely. So how can our listeners get your books? I think uh, they would really like them. They're available on Amazon. Most of my books are under my past life, uh, under my past name, Donald Allen Kirch. I'm transgender, so I am now Allison Church. That in itself has been an adventure. Um, they can go to my website, donaldallenkirch.com. No spaces between the name. I'll blotched up together and when they go to my website they will see book trailers that will kind of movie entice them and find the book i hope also if you go to the individual pages you'll see reviews i also put an audiobook sample in there because most of my books have audiobooks nice and pe people can go to audible and look those up and it's it's been an adventure for me because the different i've noticed as you go to different formats they have to be they have to be tweaked to work in that format i had to go back and tweak some of the uh, dialogue in some of them because when transferred to an audiobook and you're not allowed your own pace to read it what was in my ear was not in my head when i wrote it that makes any sense because oh, wow. as i'm hearing it i'm going no that doesn't sound like the way i wrote it and i'd either have to speed it up or slow it down or add a sentence or two so when you're Doing the audiobooks, there's sort of an added bonus there that there is some material there that is not in the printed versions. 
Wow, that's a, that's an experience all its own. So I was going to ask you really quick, and it's just a, kind of a silly question, but it's kind of for me. What do you prefer? Do you like do you prefer electronic media or physical books? Ooh, well, when I'm out and about and I'm traveling, I do have a Kindle, and I do listen to Audible uh, audio books. I prefer a book like, like a hard physical, book yeah, with with the smell of the the uh, the old pages, the old vanilla paper smell. Uh, when I was a kid, I would just peruse old used bookstores, <laughs> which unfortunately are kind of vanishing, which is yeah. sad. Uh, but I do prefer a physical book, but I'm not beyond reading an electric med- media either. Yeah. When I was a kid, there was nothing like just going into an old bookstore and, and spending hours uh, yeah. just looking and read and reading. And I, the friend I went with me, he was a, he was a super fast reader would actually read a book while we were there perusing these books. So it was, I envy it was, people that can do that. That's a superpower. Oh, it, yeah, absolutely. I definitely envy him for that. Allison, this has been a blast. I've really enjoyed talking tonight. And Me too. What, what great insights. I really appreciate it. You have a fantastic night. Thank you. You as well. Thanks, Allison. Take it easy. Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative. Hey, hey. You're too late.